All right, well, good morning again, and again, let me say welcome to you, especially if you are a guest here at Providence, uh, and let me let you know that we are in the midst of a series through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, so four books of the Old Testament that we're doing all together, really probably across the course of about nine months, and if you are a guest today, and if this is your first time, you just happen to come on the day when we are dealing with uh, maybe the most well-known story in all of the Old Testament, and that's the story of David and Goliath. Now, what happens a lot of times with our familiarity, because, I mean, whether it's your first time in church or you've been here forever, you probably, in our culture, in American culture, have some familiarity with the story of David and Goliath. And what happens a lot of times when we have that kind of familiarity with the story is that sometimes we miss the point of it because it's been kind of co-opted. And so what we'll do a lot of times with this is people will take this and they will, they will reduce it to just a mere moralistic story about personal courage and slaying the giants of your life, right? They'll take it and they'll reduce it to just a, essentially an ancient Hebrew equivalent of an Aesop's fable complete with a moral of the story of be brave like David and go slay your giants in your life. I'm not saying there's no elements of that. We'll hit on a few of it. But that is not the main point of this text at all. That misses it entirely. The main point of this story is that it is a story that shows how God used David to save his people. And to bring glory to his name. And to pave the way for a true and better David, Jesus, who was to come later. That's the main point of this story. David points to Jesus. He prefigures Jesus. I mean, think about it just a little bit. From this one man, this one man wins this battle. And it's a blessing to everyone else. His victory is imputed or reckoned to Israel, just as Jesus' victory is imputed to or reckoned to followers of Christ. And so that's the main idea of this text, and we're going to build to that. We're going to get to that. But like I said, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think it's absent of some examples for us, because Hebrews 11 says that these things were written about David as well as a bunch of other prophets and Old Testament figures as an example for us. And so I think there are some things that we can see from David's actions here that are instructive to us. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to note two things about God out of the life of David, and then we'll turn the focus to the main point, the story of a champion who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. All right, so first then, let's just get into the story. So, like I said, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of those that's around you, the black hardback ones, and you can find 1 Samuel 17 on page 239 in those Bibles. And you will, we're going to read the whole chapter. So you will be blessed by following along in that. If you don't own a Bible, or maybe you don't have one that's an ESV like we read here, and you want to track along with the same, then take that home with you. You can have it. It's our gift to you. The first Samuel chapter 17, page 239, in the black hardback ones around you. Again, grab that, open up. You'll be 
It'll, it'll be better for you, and it'll go faster, too, if you look at the words with me instead of me just reading them. All right? And so 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So let me just kind of set the scene here. We have the Philistines again, all right? This coastal people who had migrated from maybe around Greece and Macedonia had come down, settled on the coast after crossing the Mediterranean, and they're seeking to extend their territory, all right? And they're able to accomplish this because they are strong and they are technologically advanced. This people were some of the first to work with bronze and iron, and they made their weapons from these things, and so they are mighty, all right? And in their might, they control uh, Gezer and Megiddo and Hazor. These are three major cities along, uh, at that time, the most well-known trade route, which is known as the Way of the Sea, or the Via Maris. All right, so to kind of get an idea of the commerce that they control, it'd be kind of like the East Coast, Miami to D.C. to New York. They've got that kind of commerce within their control. So they are rich. They're doing well. And so they have this might, they have this power, they are fearsome. And so they come to the valley of Elah, or about 12 to 14 miles west of Bethlehem, which is where David lives. All right, so verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he, had a bron- and he had bronze armor on his legs. So notice, again, all this bronze, all this, they had this, they fought with this. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. And so these, these verses here are very much just kind of the in this corner, because right, they're getting ready for battle, standing at nine foot six with armor that weighs over 120 pounds and a spear that weighs over 16 pounds is the champion of Gath, Goliath, right? Now, you want to get an idea of what a spear weighing 16 pounds is. Go to academy, pick up a 15, and try to throw it. Don't buy it, take it home and throw it. <laughs> I don't want you going to jail, right? When you say heavy, I mean, that's 16 pounds is legit. That's like high school shot put. So it is a big, heavy thing. And so here he is. He's all ginormous. He's fierce. He's mighty. In this corner, we've got Goliath. He marches out there. In verse 8, he starts popping off at the mouth. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so Goliath just called out Saul. Now, if you remember Saul, when we first met him, he's head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. Israel folks are usually, at this time, were pretty short. Maybe the average height of about 5'3". So he might be, you know, 6'4", or something like that. So he's way bigger than anyone. So if someone's going to fight, you'd think it would be him. He's head and shoulders taller than anyone. He's also literally one of only two, pe- two people in all of Israel who have a sword. Because they didn't have iron. They didn't have those things. But he has a sword. He has armor. And the people had wanted a king who would go out and fight for them. And yet Saul won't. Because he, along with everyone else, is dismayed and greatly afraid. Because Goliath is fierce. And so we get to verse 12. And verse 12 is kind of like the, all right, now over in this corner we have David. And it is not as flattering. So look at it with me. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And some of this is a review from chapter 16, if you were here last week when John preached. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Aminadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He already had a relationship with Saul. He played the guitar for him to help with his anxiety. And he goes back and forth. Back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, note that, 40 days. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. And so David, like over in this corner, we have David. David's back home in Bethlehem. Right? Apparently his dad, Jesse, was not too impressed with the anointing Samuel had done in chapter 16, proclaiming him the king of Israel, even as a small boy, because he's still here tending the sheep. But this was God working in David. He was working in David, preparing him for the big thing by teaching him to be faithful in the smaller thing. That is a principle of Scripture that is as sure as the sun rises in the morning. Faithfulness in the small things prepares you for increased responsibilities from God. So be faithful in the small things. And so David's at home. He's tending the sheep. His dad says, hey, take some food to your brothers. And David's an obedient son. And so he grabs his bags, heads to the front lines, and he's got food in tow. Verse 19. Now Saul and they, that's his brothers, 
And all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle, to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by, What shall be done? For the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So apparently the details of the conflict, Jesse back home on the ranch knew that there was a conflict, but the details apparently had not made their way home because when David gets there, he asks two questions. One, what happens to the dude who kills this guy? And secondly, who is this? I'm trying to think of a church-appropriate term here. Who is this? Who the heck is this guy? How about that? Who would speak this way about the Lord? About the living God? All right, now... Notice verse 25 to just try to catch an idea of how scary Goliath must must be. Because there's this reward out there for killing Goliath. And the reward is got three pieces. The first is there's a promise of riches, that he will be made rich by the king. Second, there's a promise of a bride, married one of the king's daughters, which is going to make you royalty. And then thirdly, no taxes for the person's family for the rest of their life. No taxes. Freedom for your relatives. That's the reward. And so Goliath truly, think about it, has to be some kind of scary for, you, for no one to like, actually think, okay, I'll go give this a try so I can you know, be free from taxes for life. But more importantly, look at the second question he, he asks. Verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Like, David's starting to get a little bit hot here about what's being said by Goliath about God's honor and reputation. Now, we expect that to be said by Goliath, by someone who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't know God. We expect them to make fun of God, taunt God. That's no big deal. That's an expected thing. What I think makes David equally mad in this section is that there's Israelites there for 40 days who've done nothing. They've compromised. They've given in to fear. I wonder if we do that sometimes. We give in to fear. We want to get along with people. We don't want to be seen as something, so we'll compromise on the truth of the gospel. We'll compromise 
on living for Christ. And so David is righteously ticked off. Like, I mean that in all serious, like, he, in, this is righteous anger. But then Big Brother shows up, and I mean that literally as well, his older brother, Eliab, shows up in verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And so there's a little bit of just big brother jealousy going on here because David's been anointed king and the big brother wasn't. And so, you know, he's just, just I am a younger brother. This is what big brothers do. This is just how they are. I'm sorry if you're a big brother, but you guys are jerks. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm just playing. Mine might have been, but y'all aren't. But he got as good as he gave. But there's some jealousy going on here. But more instructive for us out of this, I think, really is, like, Eliab is one of these guys who's been there for 40 days, and he's done nothing. He's one of those guys who should be standing up for the Lord, but he's done nothing. He's just listened to Goliath run down the living God for 40 days, and he's done nothing. And then here comes David saying, hey, we've got to do something about this. And Eliab basically tells him to shut up. I mean, someone who should be on David's side is trying to shut him down. And this is something that breaks my heart and is a tragic truth. Some of the most discouraging opposition that Christians face come from those who should be on God's side. As J.D. Greer put it, the cowardly people of God are always the biggest obstacle to the mission of God. People who are scared to take a risk people who are scared to step out in faith, people who would dare to take God at His word and believe His promises and live like He is the living God. Let's keep going now, verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul... And he, being Saul, sent for him. And David, all right, this is that teenager, said to Saul, the king, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Talking about Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So everyone else is terrified, right? Won't fight. But David's like, I'll do it. And so what's different then? What, what is it that makes the difference here in David's life as it compares to everyone else? What is it that gave him this kind of courage? 
Because he's a teenager against a champion. And so it's not some kind of, you know, self-generated American action movie, Jason Bourne, um, you know, John McClane, die-hard type of courage. What fueled David's confidence here is God's promises and God's power to fulfill them. See, chapter 16, he'd been anointed the king. When he arrives here, he knows that that is true. He knows that he's the next king. And so he, 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 he knows that God has plans for him in the future, and he remembers what God has done for him in the past. How he's delivered him from lions and from bears. This was David's courage wellspring. He was not self-confident. He was God-confident. David believed that God would never break his promises, and if Goliath made himself to an obstacle of God's promises, then God could take him out with a flick of a pebble. And so David's courage was based upon God's promises for the future and God's faithfulness in the past. That's why verse 37, he says, The Lord will, who deliver me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so, friends, this is the locus of courage. All right? This is where it comes from. That's what that word locus means. It's where it comes from. And so, number one, in your notes, write, The locus of courage, colon, <clears throat> The locus of courage, colon, God's promises for the future, and God's faithfulness in the past. Right? The locus of courage is God's promises for the future and God's faithfulness in the past. See, just as David had looked back on you know, what God has done in the past for courage, so must we. We must look back. As one guy put it, faith is sustained in the present and for the present as it remembers God's provisions in the past. Faith is sustained in the present and for the present as it remembers God's provisions in the past. Like when you remember the rich history of God's goodness in the past, in the past, it nurtures faith in your present dilemma, in your present circumstances. And so it's critical to remember God's past deliverances. I mean, has He not always sustained you? Has He not always brought you through? Has He not always provided for you? Why do you think He's going to stop now in whatever you're facing? You think He's just going to suddenly shut it down? I'm not into that anymore. He's faithful. He's unchanging. He's true. And so remember God's past deliverances and remember His promises for the future. That's the locus of courage. Facebook has got a ton of problems, right? A ton of problems. I could go on for a long time up here about problems. But one of the things that I do like about it is this Facebook memories thing that they do, right? So every now and then it'll just it'll show you four years ago, five years ago, six years ago, and it puts a picture or a post or something up there that, you know, with something going on. And what I like about it is it causes me to remember. It causes me to remember how God worked here. And then how he worked here. And then how he worked here. And then how he worked 
here, maybe some of you journal and you go back and you look, or you have a diary and you go back and you look and you can see God provided here and He worked here and He did this here. It wasn't what I really wanted, but it's what He knew I needed. And He worked here and He did this here and He worked here and He brought this around here. And I had no idea how He was going to do this here, but He did. And when you look back on those things, it gives you confidence that God's not going to drop you. It's not that we're trying to hang on to God and He's got you in His arms and He won't let go. He will hold you. And so the wokest of courage is knowing that God is faithful and that He will be faithful. Looking back on the past and resting in His promises for the future and His power to complete it. Nothing can stay His hand. Nothing can, nothing can defeat God. He's never lost a battle. And he won't. And so friends, the locus of true courage is found in God. He's proven himself o'er and o'er. And he'll keep on because he's just good like that. And so that's the locus of courage. The next thing I want you to notice, number two in your notes, is the logic of battle. Now, these little things that I'm giving you, these little taglines, they're really just kind of like hooks for us to hang some meat on. I'm not really proud of this outline, like, oh, that's a great outline. I'm just throwing out some things. So the logic of battle, let's look at the logic of battle. Let's think through it a little bit. Because the logic of battle, like he's going to go fight, David's going to go fight, we all know that. And the logic of, of his battle begins with the courage here, that God will deliver him. He knows that God will deliver him. And while we can't deliver ourselves, God will. And so it makes logical sense then to go out on the battlefield of spiritual life and fight if God will deliver you. And if you know, as we jump down to verse 47, that the battle is the Lord's. And so the logic of battle, friends, is that, and here's what I want you to write down for this part, that the logic of battle is that God will fight our battles. The logic of battle is that God will fight our battles. All right? We can't do it, but He will and he will give us the victory that he wants to demonstrate his salvation. God will fight our battles, and he'll give us the victory that he wants to demonstrate his salvation. And so let's look at the rest of this text and note a few things about how God fights for us. <clears throat> so look at verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. All right, so David said, hey, I'm going to fight. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you, like you're going to die. And then verse 38, David, or Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off, and then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And so David knows that he can't go fight, you know, with weapons that he's never trained with, all right? This would be like my brother who's a former B-1, you know, bomber pilot suddenly saying, I'm going to drive a tank to fight. Like, that's going to go bad for him. I mean, he failed his driver's test. It's not going to, you know, go well for him. I hope he doesn't listen to this sermon. I have dogged him really bad today. So I need to apologize. But David can't fight with these weapons. He's never tried them. And so he's going to stay with his trusty sling. And so verse 41. 
And the Philistines moved forward with moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. I mean, I, I can't help it, but when I read this, I mean, this is like, if this was modern day, this would be the mic lowering from the ceiling of the Colosseum. This would be Michael Buffer stepping up and grabbing the mic. Let's get ready to rumble, right? That's what's happening here. Like, it's about to go down. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And so after 40 days of smack talk, finally the Israelites marched someone out to fight Goliath, and it is the runt of the litter, David. Right, this teenager. And Goliath is insulted that they would even do this. And so he curses David by his own gods. But I think, I, think, I think Goliath forgot a little piece of history here. Because the very god that he cursed David by is a god named Dagon. Now for those of you who were here weeks ago, chapter 5, what happened to Dagon's statue when the Ark of the Covenant came in its presence? It fell face first, and its head popped off. It's about to happen again. Look at verse 45. And David gets a little pregame trash-talking in of his own. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That all the earth, notice that, all the earth, may, there's a missional component here, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and then he fell on his face to the ground just like the false god Dagon did, right? Two to three inch little stone, 150 miles an hour. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Like he didn't have a sword. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, that's Goliath's hometown, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. 
And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Friends, this is why it's logical to fight. Because it is the Lord, God, who fights for us. The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And note, part of, I mean, I pointed this out just a second ago, but part of David's waging war there and part of our waging spiritual warfare here and now has a missional component. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that God saves. That He's the hero. And He gives victory to those who trust in Him. He does this. He is the champion. And so I want you to see what God has done right here when you get to verse 50. All right? The stone's been slung. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. I want you to note this because this is something that happens very often in Scripture. It's something that God does. That God will use the weapons of our enemies to defeat our enemies. And we use the very weapons of the enemies to defeat our enemies. See, David has no sword here. Verse 50 is not just telling this as like an anecdotal side note, but because this was a victory that had never been seen before. A victory that had been won out of weakness. He didn't even have a sword. I mean, this 100% made no sense to anyone in, in, in the world. Only God could do something like this. You've got this little scrawny teenager taking on the ultimate UFC fighter. And he takes him out in an instant. Like for all the smack talk, it's ten seconds. And when it's done, David goes over, uses Goliath's own sword to chop his head off. And on the cross, Jesus did the same thing. He defeated death by death. Like he took that weapon of death and he died to kill death. Like we see the death of death in the death of Christ. Death is dead in the death of Christ. He has defeated it. It's this great reversal that happens that brings salvation to to me and to you and anyone who repent and believe that death has been defeated. And then you also notice here that All the people of Israel share in the victory of David. They all get in on the victory of David. It's not just David's alone. And so, yes, I do want us to learn from David about the locus of courage. And yes, I do want us to learn from David about the logic of battle, even in the face of insurmountable odds. But lest we misidentify who we are in the story, we are not David. We're the quivering, cowering Israelites that are terrified and who need a hero. And the hero is Jesus. And Jesus comes to defeat our great enemy of sin and death and hell. He comes and He takes it. And ultimately then, this is calling us to exult and rejoice in number three, the Lord of victory. Number three, the Lord of victory. This passage is a prelude. It is a picture of coming attractions about a battle one man would wage that would be for the benefit of many. 
David won the battle and Israel is saved. David's victory is imputed and reckoned to Israel. This is about Jesus. David is a type of Jesus. I mean, see this. Like, follow along here. Like his forefather David, but even more so, Jesus was the Lord's anointed king and a man after God's own heart. He would be the chosen servant of Isaiah 53. He would crush the head of all of our enemies following 40 days of battling the serpent Satan in the wilderness. He would use the weapon of our enemy, death, to defeat death, inviting his people who trust in him to share in his victory. And this greater son, David, would be given the reward for conquering the giant of sin and death. Remember the threefold reward? He would be crowned with power and wealth and wisdom and might, for he is the lamb who was slain. He would also receive a bride, the church, and he would make free all who are his relatives, all who trust in him as their savior and substitute. And through his victory on Calvary, Jesus would see that all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel and that the Lord saves because the battle is his. And so now, for those of us that are in Christ, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. We've already won. Jesus is our hero. Jesus has defeated. And so since Jesus has defeated our greater enemy of sin and death and hell, we have confidence to fight our lesser enemies. Whatever they may be in your life. And so as Danny Aiken puts it, David and Goliath then is really not about pulling for the underdog. It's not about the bigger they come, the harder they fall. It's not about the size of the dog in the fight versus the size of the fight in the dog. It's not about defeating the giants in your life. It's not about little David as your example. It's about little David providing a preview of coming attractions. Coming attractions of a greater David who is your savior, who is your substitute, and who is your unlikely champion. Psalm 2.12, speaking of this coming messianic Davidic king, says it so well. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, the giant slayer. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You fight for us because we are weak. We face battles. I mean, the big battle, the one that, that, that matters for all eternity, sin and death. We have no chance of winning. No chance. For we are all sinners. All of us. Every person. No one's better than another. And yet, Jesus, you came and took our just punishment. You absorbed God's wrath against our sin in our place so that we could be set free so that we could inherit and be given the victory that you won through your death and resurrection. And Father, now I pray that because you've won that bigger, greater battle, that we would then have confidence in waging the smaller battles. And we wouldn't fear even death. Because death has been robbed of its victory. 
For you've defeated it. And now to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so when cancer comes calling, we need not be fearful. Even if it takes us home, heaven is our reward because you have defeated the giant of sin and death. Father, when a spouse dies or when someone walks out on us, we have something more secure. We have one who loves. And when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil because you are with us. Because you've taken care of the bigger things. We don't have to be scared that the world's going to fall apart. As you're sovereign and you're good. And the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Your church will grow. Your kingdom will be built. You will come again. And you will make right all that's gone wrong in this world. And you will set up your eternal kingdom for all time. Where each day is better than the day before. For those who trust in you. And so, Father, give us confidence in our life because of the victory that Christ has won. Then, Father, for those of us in here who do not know you, Lord, there's not room for confidence because we can't fight our battles. We need a hero. But, oh, God, help. Help. Help people who've never trusted in you to see that you are a hero who holds open arms to anyone who will trust you, who will take you as Lord of their life, and Savior of their soul. And so, Father, have your way with us as we sing of your might, as we sing of your power. You are the living God, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, almighty and unmatched in power. And you fight for us. Invigorate us with God confidence and crush out of us self-confidence. In the name of Christ.